Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. So to kick this one off, we're just going to go briefly back to the previous episode. I, I promise this will be a short one, but there is a major point I want to cover and reiterate and explain to make sure that everybody's getting it. And it arose a couple, I got a couple questions after the last podcast. And I want to thank everybody that took the time to either email me or leave comments on the podcast website, I was happy to hear from a lot of people who shared the same sentiment I do that get the issue that we're dealing with right now in the U.S. I also appreciate several folks from overseas took the time to comment to say, no, they enjoy hearing about this stuff and share a little bit about what's going on in their country. So we're not going to beat this one to death. I'm sure this will be a topic. I'm positive it'll be a topic we revisit in the future. I've got some other things planned because I do think it needs to stay in our consciousness as we develop as hobbyists and as we you know, continue to grow the hobby as new people come in. So it'll be something that we talk about. Hopefully it'll still be a lot of this could happen as opposed to this did happen. I fear that someday there will be a lot of this did happen and this is what you need to know. But one of the things that came up, somebody asked about the Brazilian species and I believe I mentioned at some point in it that people were afraid to show them off at YouTube or that they were trying to hide them or whatever. And they wanted some clarification about that. I also received an amazing comment from Andrew, who correctly called out that he was worried that the uh, the major fact about the Brazilian species in the U.S. maybe didn't come across. The reason why everybody panicked when T. Celadonia, when they called about the T. Celadonia, and they said that nothing had been legally exported from the country of Brazil, that essentially kicked in the Lacey Act, which made it so that any Brazilian endemic species of spider, so if you couldn't prove that it was legally taken out of Brazil or that it came from a surrounding country at some point, because that's kind of the grasping at straws, we go, well, it could have come from this one that was taken out years ago legally. If you couldn't prove that any species that was pulled from Brazil illegally became illegal in the U.S., that's why everybody panicked. That's why people stopped selling them across. They Originally, dealers were just not selling them across state borders. People on YouTube, or there was a big thing going around where they're like, don't show off any of your Brazilian species, they're going to come and take them. So that point can't be understated. This is why we're all worried about Brazilian endemics right now. This is why the, you know, the talk of this focus mostly around those Brazilian endemics. Because as of right now, U.S. Fish and Wildlife is not enforcing that part of the law. I think they are being incredibly reasonable because as soon as that bomb dropped, even though people bought these in a time where they were believed to be legal or thought to be probably from legal stop, or in the very least, we didn't know any better. As soon as it was discovered that, you know, Brazil said, we never shipped any, we do not allow legal exportation of our wildlife. That was it. Everything that everybody had been buying for decades in some cases became illegal. So you can imagine the panic that that created. Now with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, again, I do believe that they are being more, and this is the whole point of this, the whole point of the last podcast, the one before it, I believe they're being about as reasonable as you could get. They could really bring down, and obviously there's not enough of them out there to take every single person's Brazilian endemic species, but think about it. It only takes a couple before people are just like, the heck with it, it's not worth it. And obviously somebody like myself, I, I do I worry about it? Absolutely, because I bought all these at a time when I thought they were all legitimately illegal, and then all of a sudden this happens. So that was the point of the whole podcast, the fact that they are not currently enforcing that part, but the parts they are enforcing, if we as a hobby ignore them, then what message are we sending? They're saying, hey, you know what? We get it. We get it. We're, we're not going to bother with this part of it right now, but we don't want them coming into the country illegally. We don't want you bringing them through the borders anymore. So if people continue to brown box and bring them in that way, it's just a big, you know, for lack of a better term, middle finger to U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And then all they have to do is go, you know what? We are going to enforce this now. And all it takes is a couple. They don't have to go take them all. Obviously, that's not going to happen. They're not going to take every single endemic 
but the threat of it's there. So that's where we're saying, you know, when I said the cat's out of the bag, I, the expression was meant to mean they recognize that a lot of these species have been in here and bred for a long, long time. Even though it doesn't matter, they can sit there and go, it doesn't matter. They came from illegal offspring. That was the essentially the fruit of the poison tree argument that, hey, if you're buying these species, you're breaking the law too. Yeah, in theory, right. You're right. However, that's not what they're concentrating on right now. They're kind of giving us some leeway and we are kind of ignoring the leeway they're giving us and just continuing with the same type of behaviors. That's why I'm so worried about newer Brazilian endemics coming into the hobby because that's saying we're not listening to you. We don't care what you're doing. That's the message that's coming across. That doesn't make us engender any sympathy from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. It won't engender any sympathy sympathy from the public at large. So want to make that part very clear. As of the moment, people are selling them. They're, we're going about business as usual. That could change in a heartbeat. And I believe Andrew summed it up beautifully at the end of his comment where he said, don't mistake U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services complacency about them for now for a guarantee that they won't go after them in the future. And that's what we're all worried about. So folks, make your own decisions. You decide what you need to do. My job as somebody who enjoys keeping tarantulas and has spent a huge chunk of their life trying to educate people on them is to make sure that everybody is aware of the laws and hopefully follows them. So if you don't follow them and you think you're doing some great thing from, for the hobby, you're not. I'm sorry, you're not. You're not going to get any praise from me or any accolades from the hobby in general. You are just making us look bad. And please don't kid yourself into thinking that the people are doing this, are doing it for altruistic reasons. It's money, guys. It's money. I'm sorry. You're not. Maybe there's somebody out there who just doesn't know anybody, but then you're, again, you're breaking the law and encouraging other people to break the law because of ignorance. You can't have that in a hobby that, that we're this close, precariously close to losing everything. So that's it. That's what, six minutes of my time used on that. We are moving on to the main topic of our podcast today, which is slings, spiderlings, everybody's favorite thing. I did this as a, originally wrote it out as an article for Tom's Big Spiders, and I turned it into a two-video series on YouTube because I really tried to pour in every single bit of information, every tip and trick I had as far as raising slings because I understand how incredibly scary it can be to move from keeping. A lot of folks start off with adults. You get a tarantula, and I've shared this with myself. You want a big tarantula to show off. You don't want to go, hey, see this little vial over here that you can't see anything? There's going to be a big spider in there someday. People, that's not what we get into hobby for. We want to see these big spiders. So a lot of us immediately jump into, in the very least, buying juveniles, young adults, and then we start recognizing, hey, there's a whole different world out there in the form of spiderlings, keeping babies, growing them up. And when I first started doing Tom's Big Spiders, the website, I would get a lot of emails. A lot of them were about slings in particular. I want to get slings. What do I need to know? What tips do I need? I have a sling. I'm freaking out. It's so small. I don't know what to feed it. It's not eating all of these things. And I'm not saying this in a making fun of it kind of way. It's the same stuff I went through myself as a keeper when I transitioned into keeping slings. Is much As much as we want to say they're not that difficult, which I do believe in the grand scheme of things, there's, they're not that difficult. They do open up a lot more questions than generally the adults do. There are a lot more little nuances and things and tips that you can know that can make your life a lot easier 
with spiderlings and keeping spiderlings. So when I wrote this, I tried to go through all the emails and comments I'd received on the website. I even at this point, I believe I had started obviously doing YouTube. So I had some comments from YouTube and tried to cover every single thing I could think of. And after doing that, again, we did the videos, which I was pretty proud of that one. I thought I covered it. Although the weird part is the first video, which is probably the more throwaway of the two, the second one's got all the real good tips in it. First one tends to get all the looks, second one doesn't get as many looks, and that's the one with the beef in it. So I tried to put together something that anybody getting into slings could either read or sit down and watch and walk away and say, I feel ready for this. And over the years, I've even allowed some people, I had a Facebook group that asked if they could use a, a Filipino Facebook group that asked if they could translate it and use it. Like, absolutely. Fear Not Tarantulas is given out for years. The idea was to just make make this less stressful for people because slings can be stressful. And I will freely admit that when I get slings, I've been doing this for a while now, I still tend to stress over my slings. That's the I have very good luck, very healthy animals, very good luck with not having mysterious deaths. But when you have slings, you have to be on your toes. You have to be a little more careful. You have to be a little more cognizant of their environment, of their basic care. So I last week mentioned that we're going to do, we weren't going to hit the whole sling thing. We're going to, I was going to cover some differences and things I've noticed because I have, I've evolved my own care over the years. Nothing in that I would say is outdated. I just always have more to add to it. There's more things that pop up and go, oh, I wish I'd covered that. I wish I'd covered that. And when I went back through the podcast, I couldn't find, I thought I had done this before and I couldn't find the actual podcast I did on sling care. So sometimes I've done so many of these things now. Sometimes I go through and it takes me a while or I started it off with a different title. So I got myself there. I used to do that a lot where the title of the podcast only covers a couple of the topics in it because again, those titles get too long, but I don't know. I couldn't find it. And I thought, you know what, this would be a good time to revisit it regardless. Even if I did do it, I have some things to add to it and I'm going to do it a slightly different way because I do have things to add to it, some new tips. And I got some comments recently that kind of will be nice segues into some of the things I've learned over the course of the years of keeping spiderlings. So to kick it off, what I like to do when covering spiderlings is start right from the beginning, the buying of the spiderlings. You are going to pick up your first sling. And obviously for folks who don't know, sling is just a shortened version of spiderling, which is a baby spider. So what happens is we get it in our minds. We are ready to get a sling. The first thing you should consider when getting a sling for the first time is the size of the sling. And here's the deal. There are spiderlings out there offered for sale that are like three quarters of an inch, an inch, sometimes an inch and a quarter. And then there are the tiny ones. And when I say tiny, I mean really, really tiny. The first time I ordered a tiny sling was with my G Polker Peas. It said they were about a third to a quarter of an inch. And I remember looking at a quarter of an inch and I don't know, in my mind, I just thought it was going to be a lot bigger than it actually was. A quarter inch sling, a third of an inch sling, an eighth of an inch sling is tiny. I've raised species that are an eighth of an inch. They are so small. So their bodies are small. Remember, when we're talking eighth of an inch in the U.S., we're talking about diagonal leg span. So that's not the size of the, the animal's body. The body is minuscule. It's like a grain of substrate. And I have had tiny slings in substrate in which I can't find the slings because they blend in too well. They're so small, they blend in with the substrate. So Keep in mind, if you're somebody buying your first sling, I usually encourage people to find well-started slings. For most species, if we're not talking about, and I'm assuming if you're buying slings for the first time, you're not into the big giants yet, the Theraphosa, the Formictopus, the Zenesta species, Pamphibeta species, you're talking about, usually they're buying a Fauna Pelma, Gramostola, Brachypelma, especially if you're buying one of those 
try to find ones that have some size on them. I usually tell folks to look for something around three quarters of an inch or larger. Does that mean you have to start there? No. And everything I'm going to say is a suggestion, but it's a suggestion that I, you know, a conclusion I came to after having a lot of people freak out about this. A quarter inch spider is tiny. When you're talking about one of the slower growing species, you're talking about a spider that may take quite a few months, if not years, to reach a decent size. And that tends to freak people out. So usually when you're talking a three quarter inch spider, especially when you're talking about one of those slower growing genera of tarantulas, you're talking about one that's been well started. It's molted several times. It's decent, you know, it's past that super fragile stage. And usually at about the, I would say, three quarters of an inch to one inch mark or so, they start growing more quickly. So there's less time you have to wait for them to grow up. So right off the bat, if it's your first spider, I do encourage people to ignore the little teeny tiny ones until you get some some experience under your belt, feel a little more ready for it. I will tell you right now, and I've shared this with many people, the teeny tiny ones freak me out still. It's, it's, I have a very hard time seeing them. It's hard to tell when they've eaten. It's There's a whole different stress level with a teeny tiny spider. So my first tip would be when selecting slings, if you're buying your, your first sling, I don't care how cute you think that Pseudhapalopus species Columbia is, if it says it's an eighth of an inch, you want to probably wait a little bit till you have some experience under your belt to deal with the larger slings. Because again, the smaller the sling, sometimes the more stress you're actually going to have when raising it. And as it's your first one, you want it to be a good experience. Sadly, I've had many people that will email and say, you know what, I got my first sling, it was teeny tiny, I think it died, I can't find it, I don't ever want to raise slings again. That's sad because I will repeatedly say this, one of the most rewarding things you can do in the hobby is grow a tiny sling to adulthood. It is so satisfying. I have a lot of my, sadly, a lot of the ones that I've raised up from slings are now getting, you know, their old age. I have some of them that are passing away, but they're still a sense of pride. When I look at them, like I brought this animal up from a teeny tiny little baby to this, unfortunately, now old elderly adult. So definitely worth doing, but set yourself up and recognize I do have, I believe I made some type of illustration in the article. If you want to see just how tiny these slings can be when they're a quarter of an inch, eighth of an inch, I don't think 16 of an inch, maybe with true spiders, but not usually with tarantulas. I'm not sure if any, a tarantula is that small, but check it out before you buy to get a real good understanding of just how small that is. The other tip I would I usually share with people is a lot of times they go, I'm buying one sling, which is fine. Do what you feel comfortable with. I always encourage folks to get a couple slings, maybe even three. I know my first time, I think I got two and then quickly bought a couple more for two reasons. Number one, you're going to be paying up the wazoo for shipping because you know it's $45, $50, 55 regardless. And sometimes they won't ship. If you buy a cheaper sling, they won't ship until you've spent like $100 or more. So that's something to keep in mind. The other thing is it'll help keep you from fixating on that one sling because one issue, we, we did the whole thing about over caring for our tarantulas. 
folks that get one sling, there is going to be so much more panic than somebody that might have one to go, all right, this one just buried itself. I don't see it right now, but this one's eating. It gives you, it distracts you a little bit. It keeps you from fixating and perseverating on that one animal. So that would be my tip as well. Find a few that you want to check out. Find maybe a couple different species. Maybe find one that's in that beginner, you know, the Afonopelma brachypelma. Maybe find something a little different. Try growing that up as well. It also gives you an idea of how different, you know, the differences between different slings. But that would be another tip I would encourage people to think about when buying slings. Not, you don't have to. Please don't, you know, if you're trying to convince your parent or your loved one that you're going to get your first spiderling, don't say, well, Tom said you got to get, I'm not saying it that way, but I'm saying it's, I do believe it allows you to, A, you're getting two or three times the experience because you're keeping different slings and B, it'll allow you to not fixate so much because you're going to fixate. I still do. I have slings today. I check my slings every time I come up here to make sure that things are okay. Now, your sling is on the way. What to put it in? This, in my opinion, is one of the most important steps and one that can save you so much stress because if you pick the right enclosure first and do your research before you buy the slings, have things on hand, ready to roll, it just makes for a much better experience than folks who pick up a sling and then shoot out the email, hey, Tom, this sling's coming. What should I put it in? Because now you're scrambling to find stuff. It's a lot easier to find and experiment with different cages before you actually get the animal in your possession. So that would be a huge tip. Most important tip, make sure you do this before you even order the spider. I know sometimes we see stuff like, oh God, I'm afraid it's not going to be there. Make sure you have stuff ahead of time. So what to use? When I first got in the hobby, I'll share this. When I first got in the hobby, I used a lot of the Amac boxes. Jamie's used to offer the Jamie's enclosures, little Amac boxes with a little vent. I use those. I think I had probably 30. And I use those for slings for years and successfully for slings. So they work great. I've used them. They work great. The Amac boxes, awesome. I used to shy away from dram vials. I don't know what it was. I can't even remember now because I've used them for so long. But I used to hate dram vials. I didn't understand keeping them in dram vials. They just didn't look right. I now am a, a huge proponent of dram vials for smaller slings. It's a lot easier to control the environment in there. I will say with the Jamie's enclosures, they had that nice vent in there, which was great, but things dried out very, very quickly. I like the dram vials because it's easy to kind of control the environment. The one knock that they have uh, that I've sometimes had from them is we always talk about cross ventilation. I think with most slings that are burrowing, that is not an issue. I've learned that as I've come along in the hobby. Now, if you're trying to keep a, say, an avicularia species in it where you want cross ventilation, my buddy Eric Topping actually sent me a text with a picture of one of the ones he altered. You can put holes in them, but like he said, the problem comes at later on if you go to use them for something that isn't arboreal. You're left with the holes, and the water tends to run right out the holes when you try to add moisture in, which is not going to work if you have like a moisture-dependent burrowing species. So there's some issues there. It is easy to put holes around them. I do not do it with the majority of mine. I have a couple that I have for, again, I had a vicularia in them once upon a time, and I did put holes around the side. I used to use... I have a little Dremel tool with a tiny little uh, drill bit on it that I use to get them in there. I've seen some people that burn them in using a soldering iron. Just know that if you put enough holes in there for an avicularia, you're probably not going to be able to use that one for anything else. But I love the dram vials. I'm looking over now. I probably have 30 of them with slings in them. I like the fact, again, they don't have the cross ventilation, but they're going to be burrowed. They're not necessarily going to need cross ventilation. And I think one of the most important aspects of a good sling enclosure is that it doesn't dry up too quickly. That's incredibly important 
for folks that are just keeping slings for the first time, some will overfixate on it. Some will, unfortunately, one of the things that will happen is you read the slings need moisture. You're freaking out. You keep adding moisture. If you use a dram vial, it'll stay. The moisture will stay put a lot longer than it will other things. I have experimented. One of the things, there's a lot of folks out there making like those magnetic top enclosures, little sling enclosures. I have a couple of those. Be careful using those, A, which which is a good part about them. They are very, very well ventilated. There's vents all around the sides. There's venting on the top. However, I found that I put a couple small slings in those and they dried out much too quickly for my taste. It kind of freaked me out. It was a species that I needed to have some moisture in there. After like two days when it was in the wintertime, it had completely evaporated out. I did not have these guys in a sling incubator. We'll talk about that in a bit. So I think the biggest thing to be wary of when setting up your sling is that you have an enclosure that will allow, again, you don't want it too big. I will answer this question very quickly. Tom, can I put a sling into adult encl- an adult enclosure? You can, but it doesn't make any sense. You want to A, be able to recognize where your spider is at all times. If you put a burring, oh, I picture somebody just asked me recently, they had a one inch uh, a Laziodora parahibana, they wanted to put it into a 10-gallon tank. If you picture a one-inch Laziodora parahibana, and this is a species that will dig, and you dump it into a 10-gallon tank, if that species burrows, you are going to have a spider burrows, you're going to have no idea where the spider is. And it's difficult to add moisture when you don't know where it is. You're flooding the burrow, you're flooding the bar. It just doesn't make any sense. The only reason I see that folks normally look to put spiders into larger enclosures is because they are scared of the rehousings. They're buying a spider that they don't want to have to deal with. The OBTs, I've heard it with P. metallicas, with uh, Salmopeus, with the Theraphosas. If you're scared of growing, if you're scared of what the spider is going to be when it grows up, and so you don't want to rehouse it, you're not ready for that spider. So no, there's no reason to put a sling in an adult enclosure. I see zero reason for it. I will never endorse that. And the other thing, B, you want to be able to find the spider. B, you want your spider to be able to find food. And some of them, they dig little burrows. They sit at the burrow. If that prey item that you drop in doesn't happen to wander all the way across the tank right to the burrow, it may not eat. You're not sure whether it's eating. I've had people that have sent me pictures of these giant enclosures with the spider. Like, I don't know if it's eating. They can't find the prey item or they find prey items dead. They thought they ate them. Doesn't make any sense. Find a smaller enclosure. I like the dram vials come in a bunch of different sizes. If you're smart, you do what I do. And as you order more and more tarantulas, you wash out those dram vials and hold on to them. The ones they ship them in to put spiders in later. The five ounce deli cups, a lot of folks will use that. I used to use the two ounce deli cups for some or 2.5 ounce ones, the little ones there. I think they're souffle cups. I don't use them anymore. They dry out too quickly. Again, it's something I've had in older, older videos and stuff. Can you keep them in one of those? Absolutely, but you have to be extra diligent in making sure they don't dry out. I've had ones that I've moistened stuff down, come back 24 hours later, completely evaporated. And that's just with putting like a small ring of vent holes around the side with like a needle or pin or a thumbtack. The problem is the top, the airflow comes out the top where the top meets the top of the actual container and they can evaporate, that moisture will evaporate them out of them very quickly. So my favorite things to use is doesn't mean you have to use them. Dram vials, five ounce deli cups. I've used the Amac boxes really well. And then obviously there's the 16 ounce. I'm adding in 20 ounce. I found 20 ounce deli cups. I love them because sometimes 32 ounce is a little too much for a smaller sling. I found that 20 ounce is good for even fossorial species where there isn't enough substrate for them to bury themselves and not find prey. That is something that can be a problem with some of the fossorial slings. They, if you give them seven inches of substrate, they will dig all the way down to the bottom. 
and they will wait for prey to come to them. We've now discovered that in the wild, they will sometimes they dig deep enough, deeply enough, they will find prey down there. They won't come up. They won't surface. I've had this happen with P. muticus. I actually had it happen with a Gramostola pulchra. I've had it happen with other species as well. Where they get too far down, you recognize that they've molted, and it's been a couple weeks. They're not coming up. So something to keep track of. The 20-ounce one, you can use it for a terrestrial. You can use it for a small arboreal, and you can use it for a fossorial. So keep an eye out for those. I love them. But you can also use the old 32-ounce deli cup, or you can also use the 16-ounce deli cup. 16 ounces are usually used for the terrestrial species. However, they can work for the fossorial as well. Packing a little extra substrate, as long as the fossorial can build itself a nice den, you're fine. I usually use ones in the 16 to 32 ounce size for larger slings, usually ones that are about an inch or so or an inch and a quarter. Can you put a smaller one in there? Absolutely. It's just, I've found that the dram vials are good for the smaller ones. Once they get some size in the dram vials, then I may move them either into the deli cups or into a larger enclosure. But those are definitely one tip I would give people is before you even start buying slings, this most of us end up getting a lot of different slings. I haven't heard from too, too many people in my tenure doing the Thomas Big Spider stuff that only end up buying like, hey, I bought two slings, I'm done. Some people do, obviously, but the majority get two slings start getting freaked out because they're burrowing, they're not doing anything, they're not eating, they pick up more slings. Then they pick up more slings, and then we have a bunch of slings. So I usually encourage folks beforehand, put a little money aside and buy a couple different alternatives. Buy some different size deli cups. Get some, buy some of the dram vials. Buy AMOC boxes. Have things on hand so that you are prepared no matter what the situation, no matter what the size of the sling is, you're getting, no matter what, sometimes you order something, we'll get into this in a moment, you order something, and the size you get wasn't exactly what you were picturing. Be prepared for that type of situation. So besides the dram vials, besides the AMAC boxes, besides the ever popular deli cups, I've also seen people use spice jars or spice bottles. You can buy those. There's a lot of different things you can try, but try it out ahead of time. Make sure it's, you know, put some substrate. We'll talk about the setup in just two seconds, but try it out ahead of time. Make sure it's appropriate because one thing that I do see a lot of people doing is they set up an enclosure, they get the sling and they put it in and then immediately they go, "Uh oh, this isn't working for me. And that just means extra rehousing. It means more time for the spider to settle down. It means that more time before it eats. It means you have a keeper that is going to start this situation with their brand new sling stressed out. And one thing I do encourage folks to try sometimes, and I've done this before, is if you have a a container and you're not sure how it works out, especially if you're going to be keeping a sling or a moisture-dependent sling, especially a moisture-dependent sling in it, set it up, moisten the substrate, sit it on the shelf, and watch it for a couple weeks. Get a feel for how quickly the water evaporates out of it because this is what's going to kill your sling. This is what kills a lot of slings. I just received in the past three weeks, I did the podcast about mistakes and accidentally killing your sling, how to get over it. And in the past few weeks, I've received several stories of folks that basically set up their slings. They tried to do the old set it, forget it, which we try to tell people to do this to a point, but they came back, realized the substrate had completely dried out and the sling had died. They found it in a death curl, dead. Set up your enclosures, put the moisture, put everything in it, just like there's going to be a spider in it. And I've done this many times before and been glad I did. And then check it day after day. Watch that water line. I I mentioned I have some of the really fancy sling enclosures, the three by three cubes. 
And I had a sling in that that I put the, it was moist substrate, packed it in there, did a little starter burrow, squirted some water in there, put the sling in. Three days later, I came back and it was like bone dry. So pay attention to how quickly the water evaporates in those enclosures. Whatever you use, if you're using the AMAC boxes and you ventilated the heck out of them, that's great. But pay attention to how quickly that water evaporates because that may, A, in the very least, involve you spending you know extra time and extra diligence to make sure that the water doesn't evaporate out. And B, setting up some type of situation that you know prevents these sling enclosures from drying out too quickly. So let's move into, we have it. We have our spider ordered. We have our enclosures all lined up. Now you have to set them up. This is pretty easy as far as tarantula husbandry goes. I just had somebody come on one of my videos and go, it seems to me that you set up all the slings pretty much exactly the same way. And yeah, it's it's pretty similar. Basically, you're going to have terrestrial, fossorial, or arboreal. For a terrestrial setup, you still want to include enough substrate to A, keep that moisture in there. If you put in, I've seen people sprinkle in just like a half an inch of fluffy cocoa fiber. A, the spiders don't like walking on the fluffy stuff. B, when you try to keep that moist, that is going to dry out. Cocoa fiber dries out so quickly. You want to give them at least an inch or so. If you're using a dram vial, inch and a quarter, inch and a half of substrate, make sure it's moist substrate for just about 99% of the species out there. The only ones that I don't, that I can think of that I don't overly moisten the substrate for, I don't keep the substrate super moist for, OBTs, uh, peam uranus, when I kept those, I just keep a corner moist, dribble some water on the webbing. GBB, same thing, moist corner, dribble water on the webbing, kept the rest of it dry. G. porteri, same thing. I'm sure there are other species. So make sure you do look up because it's not all identical, but make sure you look up the individual care. But most require some moist substrate. Again, just like with the larger counterparts, the all the substrate doesn't have to be super wet. It's That's a big misconception that people start to see the top dry out, freak out. Most slings will burrow. They will burrow down to find the moist substrate. And so if you give them a level of moist substrate on the bottom, allow the top stuff to dry out a bit, that allows them to dig down to the moisture level that they need. Now, one of the things you will have to do for most species is keep that substrate partially moist. One thing I like to do to keep the moisture in there is to use, I have A, a little water bottle with a little sharp little nozzle on it that I can direct the water right where I want it. I've used little pipettes. I use those a lot and people have used syringes. And what you do is you fill that syringe, you fill that pipette, use that little water bottle and you can take with a pipette and with a syringe, you can literally inject the water into the substrate so it goes down to the lower levels and leaves the top levels dry. The trick is when adding the water, don't just spray the top. This is where you hear, oh, I spray it once a week or so. That's not going to do it. That's going to dry out very, very quickly. Leave the substrate very dry. You're not going to give the spider any, uh, the environment it needs to keep its book lungs moist, to not become dehydrated or desiccated. I like to aim the water if I'm using my little spray bottle right at the corner or the side where the substrate meets the enclosure. You allow it to filter down, drip down into the lower levels. That way you don't have to spray the whole top of it. It works better that way, I found. Now, in terms of what to use for substrate, I use a lot of cocoa fiber for my slings, and I'll tell you why. It absorbs water very, very quickly. It does let go of the water a little more quickly, but if you're using, like, say, a dram vial or something that doesn't have a super amount of ventilation, then it will hold on to it for a bit. But the big thing is you're going to spend a lot of time trying to rehydrate these things. And depending upon which substrate you use, that can be more or less difficult. So I've always found that the cocoa fiber, the old faithful is just easier to use, but that doesn't mean it's the only thing you can use. You can use topsoil, people use peat, people use combinations of it. 
I've used BioDude quite a bit. The trick is just have something that you know you're going to be able to rehydrate because what I used to use topsoil, the only issue I had with it, if you pack it down really tight, it's nice and moist. They dig in it. It makes for great burrows because it solidifies. But then when you go to try to add more water to it, the water doesn't sink in very well. And that could be an issue. So choose your substrate carefully. When it permits for slings, usually for me, for slings larger than a half an inch or so, put in a water dish. If you're using dram vials, it's tough to put in a water dish. Some people use Legos and stuff like that. But I found that vial essentially becomes their home, their burrow. The whole vial is basically their home. So sometimes they'll web it up. They'll flip it over. They'll bury it. Once they get, I get them into the 16 ounce, the 32 ounce, 20 ounce deli cup, something around that size. Even the Amac boxes, you can fit one in. I will put a water dish in. They will not drown. I repeat, they will not drown. That's a, a common myth and misconception. I've never had a sling drown. I've given slings water dishes that are teeny tiny little slings and seen them drink. No problem whatsoever drowning. Uh, you can also, for heavy webbers, you can drizzle some water on the webbing for them to drink. I've done this with Avicularia species, with Carabina species, with OBTs, with uh, GBBs, C. cyanopubicins. You can just drizzle some, dribble some water on the substrate, dribble some water on the webbing. The other thing, as far as hydration, give them some sphagnum moss. There's a lot of different sphagnum mosses out there. I've used the New Zealand stuff for a while. I've kind of switched back to this other version that's very green, looks great in my enclosures. But the sphagnum moss not only looks pretty, but it serves a couple valuable purposes. It holds moisture so that if you're one of the ones that does do a little spraying, and I have sprayed in... I should say earlier, I don't spray at all. Spraying shouldn't be your main way of hydrating. Let's put it that way. I have sprayed webbing, plant stuff, because what will happen is in the morning, they would come out, there would be some dew on there they could drink from. So a lot of them will drink in the morning or late at night. But if you have sphagnum moss, they can drink right from the sphagnum moss. And for teeny tiny slings, it provides a great place for them to hide. I've had many, many, many spiderlings that I rehouse that ignore the cork bark hide, that ignore the starter burrow, and immediately web up behind some of the sphagnum moss. So definitely include sphagnum moss. When there's room, include the cork bark. I like to put little cork bark hides. I actually buy little bags of cork bark cutoffs that I use for hides and stuff for the smaller slings. Great way if you want them to start burrowing. And here's a little tip while we're at it. I just received a comment on my YouTube channel from Callie who was asking about she has some slings that aren't burrowing. A couple of them burrowed, several of them aren't. Now, I don't know. I haven't heard back from her yet, but it did bring up something that I've seen people do. Folks will set up the sling enclosures. They'll put a bunch of nice moss substrate in. They'll squirt water all over the top of the substrate. And unfortunately, the water doesn't seep down to the bottom. So when the spider's looking for moisture, it doesn't burrow because it has the moist, the moisture that it wants is up on the surface. So then you'll get a spider that's not burrowing, sitting on the surface, webbing around there. One trick that I I like to do again is to keep that top dry. I put a starter burrow or two using like the back of a paintbrush or a pencil, a little hole right down the side between the substrate and the side of the enclosure. And then I take my little water bottle with a nozzle and I squirt some water down there and let it get nice and moist down in the lower levels. And then when you put the spider in, a lot of times the spider will go right for that burrow because it's up top, it's a little dry, it goes down that burrow and goes, oh, here's the moisture, and it builds this burrow down there. Usually it allows them to settle in more quickly. Usually they start eating more quickly. Not always, but something to keep in mind. So that's a tip. If you make everything on the top, on the surface, the moist part, then yes, your spider is going to be more inclined to hang up up top. And again, Cowie, I responded back to you, but if that's not the case, let me know and we'll take it from there. But that is a lot of times what I've seen with some of these situations where people are panicking because they've got this supposed burrowing species, but it is not burrowing. The other thing that'll happen is folks will put in, say, a C. darlingi 
into a bone dry environment and there's no, they just hang up at top because there's no urge to burrow because they don't, they can't find that moisture. Even some of the supposed arid species appreciate burrowing down to a little bit of moisture. So the moisture one is important. Make sure you got that sphagnum moss, cork bark hide, important plastic silk or plant leaf is also, I love adding plant leaves to stuff. Sometimes it just gives them a little more cover. It not just look, it doesn't just look nice. It gives them some coverage. It gives them a place to hide. I've had ones that go underneath the leaf and construct a little burrow there. Always like to put in a little plastic leaf. Uh, the silk, the only issue with the silk that I found, it's not bad. I've heard people say it's bad for the spiders. It's not, but it's silk. And guess what? The spiders are spitting out of their backside. Silk. So getting the silk off of the silk can be a pain in the rump. So a lot of times if you use a silk leaf and the spider webs all over it, you kind of have to throw it away because the silk kind of bonds to it. That's the only issue I've had with it. Plastic ones, you can buy the vines from like Petco or Zoomed or on Amazon and just pluck. I like to pluck the leaves or cut the leaves right off them and use those. You plant them in the substrate part way. Again, put a little sphagnum moss behind it. Great little hide area. So that's usually what I include. Water dish, cork bark, sphagnum moss, plant, silk leaf. That's about it. Make sure that you don't let them dry out. That's going to be the you know running theme throughout this. When you're dealing with spiderlings, do not let them dry out. Now, if anyone listening to this is more of a visual type of person, then I do have some illustrations on my website. As far as arboreal versus terrestrial, terrestrial, you know, answer dirt or so, you have a little cork bark high, a little starter burrow under it. Kind of the same thing for a fossorial, maybe a little extra dirt in there. Arboreal species, keep in mind that a lot of the arboreal slings for example, and I hope nobody's starting with, or most people aren't going to be starting with these, but Pisolotheria, Salmopius, Tapitocinius, they will all do some burrowing early on. So it's not, I do like to give them extra height because they're going to do some burrowing. They might do some webbing up top as well. So you do want to give them some height, but don't expect that if you set up an arboreal setup, which is usually a taller enclosure, not as much substrate, although I would always caution against, it's one of the problems I have with some of the little fancy enclosures they have out there is that where the vent holes are, I can't put in enough substrate. Just because it's a boreal doesn't mean you have to scrimp on the substrate. I, it drives me nuts when you see enclosures where there's like a half inch of substrate. Well, it's a boreal. It doesn't need any. If it's an arboreal sling, it needs moisture. The best way to trap moisture in there is give it, especially it's easy to do with the arboreal species because they're usually not going to burrow all that much. Add a couple inches, keep those lower levels moist. You're good to go. So I like to give them a couple inches of substrate the cork bark, definitely put some leaves on it, fake leaves, glue them to the cork bark. It gives them more hide, some coverage. Lean that against the side. You can use a little cork bark tube, sphagnum moss, water dish, same essential setup, but more height. And then again, if you're doing one of those species like a Pisolotheria, Psalmopias, or Tapitocinius, recognize that they will do some burrowing. They'll do dirt curtains behind the cork bark, in the cork, cork bark. They'll burrow a little bit around it. That's perfectly normal. Don't expect some of those real, true arboreal tendencies until they put on a great deal of size. But that's about it. Very simple. And again, I have pictures on my website. You can go to any of my videos. You can look up a million different videos, pictures online or on Google, whatever. But very simple to set up the sling enclosures. So now you've selected the slings you're going to get. You have set up your enclosures. The other tip, I mentioned this earlier, is to regardless of how many slings you, you see yourself getting in the future, have different size enclosures on hand. Best tip I can give you, a little easier for those of us who've been in it for a while, because most of us have hundreds of empty enclosures sitting around that we can pull from in an emergency. But for if you're just starting, sure, if you buy, and this is always what I tell people, if you buy one of those fancy ones, you have it all set up, you're ready to go, 
I always like to have a dram vial on hand because sometimes you get a sling, it's a little bigger than you thought it was going to be. Sometimes it's a little smaller. I've had people panicking. I bought a sling. I thought it was only going to be a half inch. I set up the enclosure. It came in. It's like an inch and a half long. I think it's too big. What do I do? And I've been there. I've been there where I've done videos. There's a couple older videos where I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't going to work. Have other enclosures ready, set up. I usually, right now I'm turning around behind me, I probably have 10 different sized sling enclosures set up with the substrate, leaves, everything's all set up and ready to go because I have them ready for when they come in. Again, easier for folks who've been in the hobby for a while, but I would encourage you that anybody that's looking to get slings, try out a bunch of enclosures, have them ready, set up and ready to go before you get it. Now, when they come in, keep in mind, you can harm the sling when trying to get it out of the travel vials. If you're not careful, if they come in a straw, the really teeny tiny ones sometimes come in a straw. Those are usually very easy to get out. There'll be little plugs in either end of the straw. You pull out the little plug, whether it be cotton, whether it be toilet paper, whether it be paper towel, usually pull out the plug from the other side. You can carefully take a little pipe cleaner or a back of a paintbrush and just coax the spider out if the spider is in a dram vial and they have wrapped up usually with the dram vial what they do is they take toilet paper or they take paper towels they roll them up and put them in there so there's a little hole in the middle when you pull that paper towel out if it starts to constrict stop immediately that's a big one i've seen i've heard terrible stories and seen pictures of people that have pulled the sling out they as they stretch the paper towel it kind of constricts almost like whether the the finger trap toys like that where you pull it and, it and it squishes the spider and kills it. So if that starts happening, stop what you're doing. If you don't have an enclosure that's big enough to allow for that to be placed in it so that the spider can come out on its own, you're going to have to set up another enclosure and do that. You just drop it in. And then when in doubt, if you have an enclosure that will permit that shipping vial to fit into it, that's a good way to avoid accidentally having the spider escape or get hurt when you're crushing it. Again, I'm assuming these are the first spiders you're working with, the first slings you're working with. Easy way to do it, just drop it in. They will usually come out on their own. When they don't, if you can't get the enclosure out or the old shipping vial out, it's no big deal. I've had ones that webbed over it so much, I've just been like, all right, I'll leave it there. And then just make sure you check on it because again, you're going to have a lag on this live arrival guarantee. A lot of them want to know sooner than later they have a a certain amount of time period you have to contact them if there's a problem so you do want to make sure you examine the spider make sure it's alive and in good health before you drop it in there let it come out on its own now another tip for folks if you're ordering tarantulas or slings i always caution and i will probably do my annual winter tips at some point but if you're ordering in the winter or in the summer i always encourage folks to really be careful about most places won't ship if it's really bad but i will have my things held if it's going to be really really cold or really hot. Keep in mind that if you get slings in when it's very chilly out, they can sometimes be lethargic. They can appear to be dead. When it's really cold or really hot, what I like to do is I unpack the box. I will take the vials out and I will let them sit at my room temperature for a couple hours or so to just kind of acclimate to the temperature before I rehouse them. So that way you avoid that. I've had people freak out. Oh my gosh, you opened up. It's just sitting there. It's curled up. It looks like it's dead. Well, it's a, it's a cold spider. It's kind of grunched itself up. It's a little stressed out. Avoid, avoid having to worry about that type of stress. Just give them some time to acclimate. Now, the big question that comes up after that is how long should I wait to try feeding it? General, a lot of vendors will tell you wait to feed for a few days or so. I, depending on the species, I will usually try feeding them sooner than later. The trick is if they look like they're scrunched up in the side, they haven't used their burrow, they're not under their hides, they look uncomfortable, they look stressed, don't bother dropping a live prey item in. That's usually the way it works. Some species, Theraphosa, the Pamphibedius, Formictopus, come, you know, to mind. 
even if they look like they're kind of stressed out, a lot of them will still eat. You'll see them spring up and grab the food item. It's a good practice is to give them some time to settle in. When you see that they're in the burrows, a lot of them immediately will go to the burrows. They'll do it. You'll see a little webbing around the web underneath their cork bark, or they'll you'll give them a starter burrow if it's a fossorial species, and they go in. Then you know they're probably set. So when the spider looks like it's relaxed or it is adapted to its new home, it's time to feed them. However, I try to. I usually try to get a meal in them because as soon as I see them eat, it makes me settle down and recognize. All right, this guy's probably okay, but. Don't be surprised if you drop your spider in its new enclosure and you try to throw immediately a prey at him. And I get emails about this all the time. If it hides in the corner, like I, I doesn't want to eat, it's hiding in the corner. The roach jumps right on top of it. It didn't move. Yeah, it's still freaked out. The best thing to do is wait till the spider acclimates, settles in, and then try offering food. Now you have your slings. You have them set up. The substrate's nice and moist. Winter's coming. The the Heat kicks on, the air gets incredibly dry, you're noticing that your sling enclosures are drying out rather quickly. Callie, who left the comment, also asked about, she lives in Nevada, it's getting cold, the heat's running, she's worried about her enclosure, she actually has some of the fancy enclosures, and she's worried about them drying out, as she should be, because the summertime, you will find that you don't need to add moisture nearly as much. That's a tip. Or if you're come, coming from a warm or humid region that's warm and humid a lot of the year, a lot of folks from Philippines, again, you don't have to really worry about the heat kicking on as much. Then you don't have to worry about adding water as much. You don't have to overdo it. But if you're in one of the places like I'm in the Northeast where it gets cold, the heat runs, the air gets very, very dry, you start noticing, like if you're noticing your skin's itchy and dry and you can kind of take your fingernail and carve your name into your hand because your skin's so dry, it means you're your tarantula cages are in danger of drying out much more quickly than they did the previous warmer months. So one thing you can do if you have a situation where you're afraid that your slings are going to dry out or you're noticing it's becoming very difficult to keep on top of keeping them moist, you create what I've always called a sling nursery. This is not an incubator. You are not adding heat to this. I want to make that very clear because there's people out there that do ones where they add heat mats or heat or lights, or we're not talking about that. We'll get to temperatures in a minute. We're talking about creating an environment that allows you to kind of maintain more ambient humidity in that environment than maybe the outside room. So what I have done in the past is buy a nice large see-through, as much see-through as I can get, plastic bin or plastic tote. And then I put it's just the same way I would ventilate it like I would if I was putting an adult specimen in it. I put ventilation holes all around it. I put paper towels on the bottom. I take an open dish of water. Usually I use like a deli cup, a 16 ounce deli cup, a 20 ounce deli cup, fill it with water, put it right in the middle. And then I arrange all of my sling enclosures around that, put the cover on and leave it like that on the shelf. What that does is as that water from inside that deli cup evaporates, it, it adds to the air inside that enclosure and it keeps that air inside there from drying out as quickly as the air outside of it which in turn keeps your sling enclosures from drying out very quickly. I've used this quite a bit. You can watch that water reservoir use in the middle. As it starts to go down, you know it's working because it's filling up. Obviously, some of the, the moisture is going to dissipate out through the ventilation holes in the side of the larger enclosure. So as it starts to dip, you add more. I've also, on really, really cold days where the heat is really pounding, I've sometimes gone in and moistened the paper towels underneath it so you have even more moisture. And again, this doesn't take the place of keeping the enclosures, the the substrate inside the enclosures moist. That's not what this is about. It's about making sure that those enclosures, the moisture in the inside of those little sling enclosures doesn't evaporate out as quickly. 
So if you're living in a place where the heat's on, you're using the wood stove, you're pumping the heat, you can measure. Again, we don't measure humidity for the sake of going, this species needs exactly 85% humidity. It's not about that. It's recognizing when the humidity dips low. Even my, I have a digital thermometer hygrometer in here. I just use that humidity reading to recognize when it's starting to dip because sometimes the winter when the heat's pounding up here, that thing dips down. I've had it in my old house dip down to the single digits, which is dangerously low as far as moisture in the air. So if you're in a situation like that, great way to protect your slings is to use one of the nurseries. Now, temperatures. I used to get order slings from somebody. They basically, in their direction, said that all the slings had to be kept at 80 degrees or higher. Obviously, with slings, they're a little more delicate. They're not going to be as tolerant to really cool temperatures. But there's no, I think a lot of people think that they get slings. They automatically have to heat them, keep them at 80 degrees. Not true at all. My first house, I would keep, it would dip down to 65 degrees, which is about, I believe, 18.3 degrees Celsius. And about, I looked it up. I cheat. I totally Googled it. But you know what I'm saying. It's about 65 degrees here, 18.3 degrees Celsius for folks that are using that measurement. And they did just fine. They still ate. What you'll get is slower growth rate. Folks that keep their slings, like I have a lot of folks that just naturally, it's like 80s. Yeah, you're going to get super fast growth rate. So know that the higher the temperatures, usually the faster metabolism, the faster the growth rates, but they will not die if you kept them, if you keep them below 70 degrees. They'll do just fine. They'll just grow a little more slowly. So very important because a lot of folks get into slings immediately start freaking out with their temperatures. I know I did. When we first got my first slings, that's when I realized the tarantula room really wasn't that warm and it would dip down to 67, 66, 65, really cold days, even a little bit lower. As long as it's not for too long, they will do just fine at those lower temperatures. So don't freak out if you're not able to keep 80 degrees. A lot of folks, mine here are kept now in the summertime. It does hit 80 to mid 80s in the winter time it's usually right around 73 lower shelves probably around 70 and then there are periods where it's super cold outside the heat doesn't keep up for a bit and it'll dip down to like 60s i've even had it hit 50s once for a little while till the heat keeps back up now i have another supplementary heater so it doesn't really happen as much they all did fine i never lost a single one during it so most of them will do fine obviously some of the like avicularia you want to be a little more careful with avicularia i've had people contact me little avicularia slings little caribbean versicolor slings and their temperatures dip down really low be a little more careful with those because they're a little more fragile however i will point out that my first caribbean versicolor ever raised it was back when it was avicularia versicolor was raised when the temperatures would be 65 in the wintertime and it was super dry. And all I would do is moisten down a corner of the substrate and sprinkle a little water on the webbing. It grew up to be a big, beautiful girl. So just a heads up with temperatures. Do not freak out about it. 70, 70s are fine. Dips into the mid to high 60s. No problem there whatsoever. And please remember that when we're talking about temperatures, we are not talking, talking about the temperature outside. We're talking about the temperature in your home. So I've had people tell me, it gets to be minus three degrees here, and I'm afraid my spider's going to die. And then I, I'm like, it gets to be minus three degrees in your home? And they're like, no, no, my home's usually about 70. Then you're fine. It's not what it is outside. It's what it is inside. And remember, again, that heat's pumping. If it's really cold outside, that's the point where you want to be careful. When the temperature outside drops, even if your heat's staying up, as long as that heat is staying up, it means that it's drying out the air more quickly. That's where you got to be more cognizant of the, the moisture level inside those enclosures. So... Again, just to be clear, higher temperatures, faster growth rate, 
lower temperatures, slower growth rate. You might see a little decreased appetite. And for some of the species like the Gramostola, Fonopelma, Brachypelma, you may see seasonal fasting, which would be perfectly natural in their natural environments. If you look up where a lot of these species come from, especially if some of the North American Fonopelma species, it gets cold during the winter. Granted, they're in burrows where it's warmer, but they do experience cooler temps. Now, the part that gives everybody stress, you've got your little sling, it's adorable, you've got it in its enclosure, it's settled in, and now you have to feed it. This can be stressful because depending upon the size of the sling you're trying to feed, it can be difficult to procure food for it or correctly sized food for it. Smaller slings, slings less than a quarter of inch, the ones that are a third or sixteenth of an inch long, are super tiny. And some folks will go to flightless fruit flies. Now, I notoriously am not, I have used a lot more of them lately. I do have a flightless fruit fly culture going at all times because I got into keeping more true spiders and some of the smaller ones that you need tiny moving prey for. So I do have some on hand, but I normally don't use them for most tarantulas. You can, if you have them and you want to use them, I've had people go, what? You can use them. You can absolutely use them. I just think there are easier ways sometimes to feed our spiders. So if you have super tiny ones, yes, you can use flightless fruit flies. Just know that if you're using like flightless fruit flies for, again, those three throw the slow growing genera, Fonopelma, Brachypelma, Gramostola, a, they will probably die out and you'll need to buy more. They can be expensive unless you get your own culture and you can keep making your own cultures of them, which is definitely a possibility. Um, B, they're just kind of a pain in the butt to wrangle. So one trick is I like to tap out a bunch that I'm going to use. I put them in a glass jar. I put tinfoil over the top of it, put it in my refrigerator for a few minutes, wait till they slow down, and then you can work with them much more easily. However, I usually avoid using them because it's kind of a pain in the butt. Easier things, smaller slings will scavenge feed. It means they will eat off of dead prey. Some species, their mom will actually kill things and leave traces of it around for them to eat. Others will just go around, find things that they're dead and feed off of them. So know that the majority of tiny slings will scavenge feed. I like to use either cricket or roach drumsticks, which is if it's really teeny tiny, you basically pinch the leg of a cricket. It'll let go of the leg so they can get away. And you drop that cricket leg in and they will feast on the meat of the cricket leg. I've seen a lot of them do that. I have used, it's gross, but it works segments of mealworms. You get some mealworms. The nice thing about mealworms is you can get a container of mealworms, keep it in the refrigerator. They'll stay. They won't hatch out. And you can take them out when you need them, thaw them out. They wiggle if you want to feed them to something like wiggly ones. Or if you feed them the slings, you take them out, crush the heads, and cut them into segments, and you drop a mealworm segment in. They will feed off of that. I've done roach legs. I've done parts of roaches. If the prey in them, say you get little crickets, and say you go to drop one of those little crickets in and go, hey, that little cricket's almost the same size as my sling, crush the cricket's head, cut it in half, it sounds gross, and drop the piece in, let it feed. I do this all the time. I have a bunch of teeny tiny slings that I've been feeding this way, right? You know, for the past couple months, it works fine. Now, once they put on a little size, I usually do that for the super teeny tiny ones, you know, quarter of inch, even some of them you'll see. And the other thing is to be aware of it. Sometimes some of them aren't very aggressive feeders, even when they have a little size on them. So always keep that in mind. If your spider isn't eating live prey or seems to be scared of live prey, kill whatever you're trying to feed it and drop it in that way. Let it scavenge feed on it. That works fine. I've had people tell me, no, they won't eat dead prey. Yes, they absolutely will. I've used it for years. They sense it. They go out there. They, they feast on it. It's great. So for tiny slings, that works. For larger slings, half inch, three quarter inch or so, dubia or red runner nymphs or pinhead crickets work great. I... I will be honest, I'm not the biggest fan to do. I use the large dubias for my big spiders. The babies, I don't feed out all that much. They're kind of, some will take them, some won't. I've had a lot of folks contact me over the years. I, I got a dubia colony, a bunch of, bought a bunch of tiny dubias. Nobody's taking it. 
I've found that they almost always go for crickets and they almost always go for red runners. So if you're going to start a colony, I love the red runners, especially the little nymphs for the little babies. They're so super tiny. They provide awesome little targets for some of the smaller uh, specimens. Cricket pinhead crickets, if you can find them, those all work and they make a very tempting meal for any spider. As far as how to gauge what size to feed, I've heard many rules of thumbs on how to select prey items. For most tarantulas, it's best to feed them items that are shorter than the total length of their bodies. This doesn't mean their legs. So if you have a three quarter inch spider, generally speaking, you don't want to drop in a three quarter inch cricket. That's going to be a little too much for it. You're looking for one that's probably going to be around, I don't know, a fourth of an inch, a third of an inch, the size of the spider's body. It never hurts to start smaller. I've had people go, I can't get this thing to eat, and they're dropping in big prey items. Try something a little smaller. Work your way up. I, a lot of times with the smaller slings, drop in prey that's probably a little too small for it, but it stimulates that hunting instinct, especially once I've just unpacked it and got it into its new home and it seems to settle in. Once they eat a couple times, then I start trying with larger prey. You can get a feel for it because some of them will be basically threatened or feel intimidated by larger prey. Now, are there species that buck this rule? Absolutely. I found that Formictopus, Pamphibedius, Theraphosa, uh, P. species, Zanestis species, they will all take usually larger prey. Most of them. That doesn't mean all of them. So if you have a Formictopus cancerides and you drop in a big prey item and it runs away, then yours isn't one of them. But I found the majority of them will take beefier prey items, which is great. It's fun watching them wrestle them down. They are very, very strong for their size, so they can take them down with no problem. Now, one thing to be careful of when feeding your tiny slings, keep in mind that if you leave live prey items in there, they can hurt, harm, or kill a molting tarantula. Crickets, especially if you drop them in an enclosure, there's not a lot of moisture. The tarantula molts. It's nice and moist. The crickets will, it can and will attack the spider, which can lead to death. If you use mealworms, be sure to crush the heads. That keeps them from burrowing and popping out later on as big beetles, which is not a good thing. Always be careful when you're dropping live prey items. And that's another reason I like to use pre-killed and let them scavenge feed when they're younger because it's a lot easier to make sure that you don't drop a prey item in there, it doesn't hide, and then come out and attack your sling later on when you're not ready for it, when the sling's not ready for it, when it's in the middle of the molt. Another question I get quite a bit is how much and how often should I feed? For me, I recognize that slings are a bit less hardy until they start putting on some size, develop that waxy coating. I like to feed my slings twice a week. I figure in the wild, slings will eat whenever they can. And in this tiny stage, they're obviously more vulnerable to weather and predation from other animals. So it behooves them to put on size as quickly as possible and to eat whenever they can. In our homes, a similar situation applies because their fragility makes them more vulnerable to husbandry mistakes. As we've already talked about, slings are a bit more delicate than their adult counterparts. So many keepers choose to get them out of that sling stage as quickly as possible. I am one of them. So if this is the route you want to take, feeding them a couple small meals, you know, every uh, twice a week or so, or even three times a week. Back in the day, I would do three times a week is a good way to go. With this schedule, some of the faster growing species will grow much more quickly. We'll get out of that delicate sling stage. Just keep in mind that if you do feed them more often, this can lead to longer pre-molts, which freaks people out. I remember I was feeding my El Parahibana sling way back in the day, like pretty much every other day, and it went into pre-molt and disappeared for about a month, and it freaked me the heck out. So keep that in mind that they will fill up more quickly. They will go into pre-molt more quickly. Now, if you're feeding larger meals, 
you do not need to feed as often. If you're feeding teeny tiny slings, a lot of times I will get these emails from people freaking out because they got a teeny tiny sling. They dropped in a large pre-killed prey item. It fed on it for like 24 hours and then it burrowed itself, it burrowed and covered itself up. And they're like, what's going on? Doesn't have to eat again. Probably not. It probably filled up and it filled up and got what it needed nutrient wise to go into pre-mold in that one feeding. So keep that in mind. If you're feeding smaller meals, then feeding a couple times a week makes a lot of sense. If you're feeding bigger meals, once a week is probably going to work. And you may find in some cases with really small slings that those larger meals, they fill up and they don't need to eat at all after that. Now, some people might ask, do I need to feed my tarantulas that often? Nope. I know a lot of folks that keep slings. They keep them fine. They feed them like once a month. They go out to the pet store, grab some food for them, feed them a good meal once a month. That's totally fine. This is, it depends on you. Honestly, I put this in a lot of my videos. Pick a schedule that works for you. Pick a feeding schedule that works for you. I just find that I want to get mine out of that sling stage. Now, when uh, another question that people ask, when are they out of the sling stage? We, we throw the term juvenile around quite a bit, and it's really, it's a very subjective term. I consider a juvenile a spider that is growing out of its sling stage to the point where it's starting to show some of its adult colorations. It's changing its coloration. It's morphing from that little brown sling or little brown blue sling and looking more like a furrier spider. For most species, for species to get to be about five or six inches max size, I usually consider a juvenile to be around an inch and three quarters to two inches or so. And for folks using the metric system, that would be about 4.5 centimeters to 5 centimeters or so. For the majority of those 5 to 6 inches, that's usually juvenile stage. You'll start seeing some of the patterning coming in, some of the colors changing. That's usually when I consider mine to be juveniles. Obviously, with larger species, Theraphosa, um, Xenestis, Pamphibedius, they can hit three inches easily within the first half a year. So you're talking about, obviously, a larger three inches or so, four inches. Theraphosa, we're usually talking like at least three to four inches or around 10 centimeters or so. There, It's tough because obviously a dwarf species would be much smaller. So usually when the adult colors start showing, that's when we recognize that they've passed the sling stage, they're in the juvenile stage, they're a bit more hardy. And that's usually when you're looking to do rehousings and to slow down the feeding schedule a bit. So you've got your spider set up, you're trying to feed it and your spider won't eat. What could be the cause of this? This, again, causes people panic. I told you I like to see mine eat because that's when I know they've settled in really well. What are some of the reasons why they won't eat? Well, I would say the number one reason is it hasn't settled in yet. I have so many people that will tell me, I just got this spider yesterday. I put it in its enclosure. I dropped in a prey at them, and it won't eat. Although most tarantulas will eat soon after rehousing, some take time to adjust. So if your sling is cowering in its corner, in the corner with its legs pulled up over its body, it's probably too stressed to eat. Give it some time to burrow and relax and try again. Don't keep rapid fire every day dropping one in. If you try it, it won't eat. Wait a few days. It's tough, but it's the best thing to do to make sure that you don't stress out the tarantula any more than it already is and you allow it to settle in. Second reason, it's fasting. Many species, including Fonopelmas, Brachypelmas, Gramostolas, will fast when their internal clock tells them that it's the cooler winter months are coming. I had this happen with my Gramostola pulchropies years ago. They just stopped eating, came out months later and started eating again. This is something that happens. Sometimes you get them in and they are already in pre-molt. When tarantulas have eaten enough to trigger the beginning of the molting process, most will stop eating. If they've been eating great only to suddenly show no interest in food, especially if their abdomen 
almonds are plump or really dark or shiny is another good indicator, then a molt is most likely imminent. Make sure they have water, keep a corner of the substrate moist, keep part of the substrate moist, and wait it out. Unfortunately, sometimes we get spiders in that are shipped to us. They never eat. Again, if they look like they're nice and fat, don't worry about it. Another popular reason or a common reason why they don't eat is they are intimidated by the size of their prey. I get a lot of folks that will show me pictures of a tiny little tarantula next to a very large cricket. Occasionally, small slings can be spooked by live prey you drop in. When this happens, the tarantula can throw up the first two pair of legs in a stress posture. It can squish up in a corner. I've seen the crickets or the prey items run right over top of them. If you suspect this is the issue, I would either try feeding it something smaller or even better, try pre-killed. Drop a pre-killed item in there right before bedtime. Turn off the lights. A lot of times you'll find that they will eat. And sometimes they don't particularly like the prey item being offered. I know a lot of folks don't like crickets. They use roaches. I've had several, many, many, many folks over the years tell me that they try to feed them dubia and they won't take the dubia, but they'll take crickets. Find what your tarantula likes. Some can be picky. I've had some that won't eat dubia. I've had some that won't eat the superworms or the mealworms. Although most tarantulas will eat anything, some won't. So if your tarantula isn't eating, another thing to try, switch up the prey items, see if something else might work. I had somebody recently I was corresponding with who was trying dubia, then they tried the mealworms, and then he finally found a place that had small crickets, dropped a cricket in, and he said it pounced right on it. It's, sometimes that's just the way it goes. And then another thing to consider, the conditions aren't right. If you're spider, if you've gone through all these, your spiderling isn't e eating, and you've ruled out all the other possibilities... Start thinking about, is it too hot? Is it too cold? Does it have a hide? Is the setup correct? Is it too moist or too dry? These are all, this is the point where you really want to start troubleshooting and trying to figure out, is it possible that in your research, because we're going to assume you did a, a bunch of research beforehand to prepare for this, in your research, did you maybe miss something? Did you set it up the wrong way? I've had situations where the enclosure is so big, they the spider's not finding the food. Start asking yourself questions about maybe is the setup incorrect? If you're still not sure what the issue is, try asking a more seasoned keeper for a second opinion. Sometimes it just takes a second set of eyes to go, hey, I noticed this here. You may want to try something different. But feel free to reach out and feel free to reach out the sources that aren't going to tear you up for having the wrong enclosure or the wrong setup if you do. Now, maintenance. Maintenance for slings is super easy, and this is going to be a quick one. First thing, look for boluses. They're really not, they're so tiny with slings, they really don't cause too much of a problem unless they get wet. If they stack too many of them in the same spot, you can start getting mold around that area. They look like little crusty pebbles. You want to pluck those out with a little set of, definitely have a set of little teeny tweezers to grab them out. You'll obviously clean and fill the water dishes if they need it. They are notorious for dumping their boluses, their garbage. They will, when they burrow, they will take the dirt up from the burrow and dump it into the water dish. Clean that up when necessary. Remove any molts if possible. I have people freak out all the time. Why don't you jump and pull those molts out? They're not dangerous. Uh, grab them when you can. Wait till the spider hardens up and is eating again or away from the molt to pull it out. But pull out the molts. Sometimes I've seen a couple situations where the molts left in there and it starts to mold. Usually there's no problem with it. That's only with species that are obviously moisture dependent and have a lot of moisture in there. But they're usually not a problem at all. So I would not freak out about the molts. And now we are up to pre-molt and molting, which is another part of the tarantula's life that usually freaks out keepers. They're keeping slings for the first time. Slings, A, people will ask me, how long will they be in pre-molt for? I'm going to start with this. It depends. It depends on the species. It depends on how much they ate, how quickly they ate. It depends on the temperatures. 
most smaller specimens I found will molt, like the faster growing ones will molt every two or three months or so. It'll take a couple weeks. They'll harden up. They'll eat again. And then as they get bigger, those periods get longer and longer and longer. But obviously in order to grow, they have to molt. So what are the signs of it? First, most obvious sign, the tarantula stops eating. This is probably, again, the most obvious one. You've been feeding it. It's eating great. All of a sudden it stops. It's nice and fat. That means that it has entered pre-molt. If you have little teeny tiny slings or older slings, the tarantula will have a very fat abdomen. It'll be very shiny, which can be misleading because the slings are usually are pretty shiny. They have that little mirror patch on it. That little mirror patch is their urticating hairs. has nothing to do with pre-molt or the skin underneath. If they're fat and they've been eating fine and then they stop again, probably the sign of pre-molt. Hairier, the much older, hairier counterparts, that's when they'll sometimes kick themselves bald and you will see the hairs underneath showing through the old exoskeleton, not so much with slings. Tarantula's abdomen and overall color will darken. Sometimes you'll see they'll darken up a bit overall, especially once they get a little bit older. That's another sign of pre-molt. Tarantula becomes slower and more lethargic. Remember, particular my C. pubicens, that one would be, both of them were very lethargic when they went into pre-molt. That was the first sign for me, like, uh-oh, they're not bolting all around their enclosure, they're not hiding. Usually a sign if they slow way down, if you see a change in behavior, your hyper spiders are now very shy and slower moving, that can be a sign of pre-molt. And then the big one, especially with most slings, the tarantula has buried itself. This is totally natural. Don't freak out. I shared the story many times about my first Laziodora parahibana that after reading that it would bury itself, it buried itself. I freaked out. I did not dig it up, but I'll tell you, I was close. That's many tarantulas that will retreat to their burrows and close off the entrances when entering pre-molt period. Uh, Elmbelt, my LP did it. Elmbelt, Fori slings, G. Polkerpies, they all buried themselves before a, bolt, a molt. They, when they do this, they're not in danger. They're not going to suffocate. They have not been buried alive. They do not need to be rescued. Just leave them alone. They're looking for privacy and security during this vulnerable period. And with some of the arboreal species, they will web up. Some of the old world species will do a lot more webbing. They'll web themselves. The arboreals will sometimes web themselves little hammocks, uh, like a little mat that they will basically flip over and molt on. Some of the slings will do a lot of heavy webbing, web themselves completely up. Again, another sign of premolt. And when you think your tarantula is in pre-molt, make sure it has a full water dish. Make sure it has moist substrate, moist in a corner if you haven't dampened it up already. And just wait it out. And huge rule, if you ever find your spider on its back, do not touch it. They are not like insects to flip over to their backs and die. This usually means they are molting. It needs to be left alone to finish the process in peace. If you see one doing this, never poke, never prod, don't spray, don't blow on it, don't shake the container, and do not flip it over. When it completes its molt, it can take several days to harden back up. People again ask me how long before I start feeding it. Good rule of thumb is to at least wait four days or so to a week to feed them. Smaller slings are sometimes ready in two or three days, but give them a little time to harden up. And then again, the bigger they get, the more times they molt, the longer that period is going to be. You do not want to offer prey items to a weak sling that is just molted, is not fully hardened. That could put the tarantula at risk. Some of them are such good eaters that they will try attacking the prey item before their fangs are fully hardened, which can lead to them breaking their fangs. And again, how often do they molt? All depends on the species, size of specimen, feeding schedule, and temperatures. Another question I get quite a bit about slings because people, they've got this little brown animal. They want to see the beautiful animal that they have seen pictures of. How long would it take my tiny sling to look like an adult? I can't answer that for you. The question comes up quite a bit is it requires a fair measure of patience to raise a tarantula from a spiderling to an adult. 
It's also an incredibly rewarding experience to raise one of these animals to maturity, so we can't wait to see them in all their glory. However, for those who want a big hairy spider to show up, the wait can be very difficult, and I totally understand that. And what people don't want to hear is when they ask me, my answer is usually, it depends. I don't know. First off, different species grow at different rates. I have an Afonopelma calcotis that took three years to reach an inch and a half. In that same amount of time, I have a Formictopus cancerides that could reach four inches, five inches, six inches in the same amount of time. It all depends on the species. There are so many factors that can contribute to tarantula's growth rate, species, how often it's eating, the temperatures it's kept at, so many variables that there's no real way to predict. If you're really that concerned about growth rates, I would ask folks that have kept them, get a general idea. Don't just ask about what they fed them, how much they fed them. Ask about their temperatures because you will find that people that keep them warmer generally report faster growth rates. And then just enjoy the ride because before you know it, they will be adults and you'll be looking back at that time when they were just cute little slings and you were panicking because they weren't eating or they buried themselves. And finally, before we end this and before I go get a drink because my throat is killing me from what's actually been like an hour and 20 minutes of talking here, some alarming behaviors you might observe while keeping slings, it can cause you some sleepless nights. So one I get a lot of, why is my tarantula climbing the walls? Well, bottom line, tarantulas can take some time to acclimate to their new surroundings, and many of them will do a bit of exploring when they're first put in their new enclosures. This can lead to climbing, hiding up in the top corners. If the tarantula is terrestrial or fossorial, it should eventually come down. If it doesn't, then there's a possibility that the substrate is too moist, or in the cases of folks that are using the cocoa fiber, too fluffy. Tarantulas do not like super fluffy substrate. Another tip for you, if you're using that cocoa fiber, pack that stuff down. Another thing, my tarantula sling is burrowing. Is there something wrong with it? Nope. Easiest question to answer in the world because almost 99% of the time the answer is no. I, I get this one asked all the time. Burrowing slings cause people a lot of stress, but it's a natural part of them being slings. Keep in mind, if they're in the wild, they can be picked off by other insects, by birds, whatnot. They want to hide. So burrows protect them from not only predation, but also from inclement weather. Very natural occurrence. It's a spider doing what a spider should do. If your spider should burrow, do not Dig it up. Do not especially shove live prey items. Open up the burrow. Shove live live prey items down the burrow. If you feel like your spider has been burrowed for too long, you know that it's molted, it's not coming up. My trick that I would share with you is to carefully open up the top of the burrow, offer pre-killed prey right before bedtime, leave it up at the top of the burrow. If you come back the next day, the prey item's still up there and it closes its burrow back up, it's not ready to eat. If the spider was ready to eat, you may see that it comes up and takes the prey item and eats it, in which case you know that it just wasn't surfacing. But generally speaking, 99.8% of the time, do not dig them up. How about my sling is covered up, webbed up its burrow? Is it okay? When a tarantula webs up or buries the opening of its burrow, it's not in danger. That's your spider's way of basically saying, do not disturb. For many species, this means they're entering the pre-molt stage. They want security and privacy for their molt. For some species, like the Fonopelma and some Gramostola and Brachypelma, they will secret themselves away for the cold winter months, especially a lot of folks, sadly, around here have wild-caught Fonopelma species recognize many of the wild caught fauna pelma species. It doesn't matter what the temp is in your home. They recognize when those temps are dropping, whether it's a change in moisture level, air pressure, whatever it is, and they will do some hibernating or, or hiding for the winter. That's totally natural behavior. 
Now, some folks will say their tarantula is hanging out over the water dish. Is that bad? Well, most likely that means it's too dry. When a tarantula camps over its water dish, that's a sign that it's craving moisture, whether it be because the animal is in pre-molt or the humidity is dangerously low in your home. Action is needed. Your best bet is to make sure you moisten down a portion of the substrate with water to give your tarantula more moisture and humidity. Sometimes I get folks who ask about the strange white dots on the walls or in water dishes. If they are hard and smear when wet, then congrats, you've just seen your first spider poopy. Seriously, I get this one a lot. They look, especially if they go in a water dish, they look like little pebbles. It freaks people out. Totally fine. Nothing to worry about there. Another one we get is my sling isn't webbing. Is there something wrong with it? Some species, what happens is we read that there are heavy webbing species and they don't web right away. It can take them time. They have to settle in, feel comfortable. I've seen this with some Carabina, Vicularia species. They put them in there and they scrunch up. Sometimes it can mean they're not comfortable. Sometimes it means you need to add more foliage, more cover, more anchor points. If you have a heavily webbing species, like say a C. pubicens, and you have it in an enclosure where there are no webbing points to anchor their webbing to, like fake foliage, fake leaves, some sphagnum moss even, then you might have a spider that takes its time webbing. They don't feel comfortable enough to go out and do it. But if you give them a starter burrow, a place to start from, anchor points, you will see more of that webbing. And some species just take longer than others to get started. It can take a spider several weeks to lay down that thick webbing you might have seen in photos on Instagram or in YouTube videos. So don't panic if they don't do it right away. Woo, that was a marathon. I knew this one was going to be a while. I wasn't sure if I'd make it in under an hour. But hey, an hour and 15 minutes, I covered just about everything I can think of. If I missed something, let me know. I do have my copious notes, but every once in a while, I forget something or forget to mention something. If you have another problem, we can always talk about Please leave. This is one. Leave comments. If you've experienced any of these, people sometimes like to go through comments and say, hey, I somebody else experienced that. I don't feel so silly now. Or, hey, that's something that I'm going through right now and all these people are saying it's normal. It helps to hear it from more than just me. So this is one. Feel free to comment away on this one. Leave your comments. What are your experiences with slings? What things have you found that work for you? I mean, this is just what's worked for me. Obviously, I'm always picking up new tips and tricks. And I'm sure other people have them as well. So feel free to chime in with that one. That's going to do it for this one. I am going to go downstairs and get a drink before I edit this one because I feel like I'm straining to talk here. It's not good because I have to teach tomorrow and I have a lesson where I'm going to be doing most of the talking. So hopefully I recover by then. Um, if you want to check out what's going on over at YouTube, I just posted my Afonapelma Burica. It was a rehousing and care video. So if you want to check that out, I know a lot of folks have been picking those up and asking me about them. Awesome spiders, awesome little spiders, definitely worth it, especially because they're really cheap considering what you're getting. I think it's a huge value for basically what turns out to be a rather fast growing Afonapelma uh, species with some blue on it. So definitely check that one out if you're interested. If not, don't worry about it. I believe it's also on the site that Tom's big spiders podcast site on thomasbigspiders.com if you want to see a text version of this and feel free to print it out or do what you need to with it again it's there for people to use of the sling guide feel free to use that there are the sling guide videos guys that will do it for me i am going to go get a drink you take care of yourselves and we'll catch you all next time